Hello, hello. How are we doing? I don't know. Is it recording back there? Oh, man. And then could you turn on the lights, the uh, little, the little pulpit slider? This is what happens whenever you're me and you're the guy that's usually back there doing a bunch of different stuff. So now I'll just like direct from afar. That's great. Hey, thank you so much. Thanks for being here, everybody. Come on in. Take a seat if you haven't already. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Glad you're here. This morning, we are continuing our series in uh, social and political theology. And today, specifically, we are talking about immigration. The fun topic of immigration, uh, giving a theology of immigration. We, ha- we had a bunch of uh, fun technical issues this morning, which is why we're starting a little bit late. So, uh, we are talking about immigration this morning, uh, which is kind of fun because it's, it's the least controversial thing we've talked about lately, which is very strange. (laughs) Typically, (laughs) immigration is a huge, like, uh, everybody freaks out about it sort of debate issue, but we've just been talking about a lot of fun stuff in here. So it's actually the least controversial thing we've mentioned lately. So it's been a fun semester. But here's what we're going to do today. Uh, Really, we're just going to answer two questions. That's all we're doing today. Answering two questions, hopefully from a biblical perspective. And those questions are, What is the most loving way for the government to handle immigrants or immigration? What is the most loving way for a government to handle immigration? That's our first question. And number two, what is the most loving way for Christians to treat immigrants? Okay, what is, we want to walk away with a good theology that helps us, something that we can actually apply as Christians in order to know how we ought to, biblically speaking, treat the sojourner among us. So I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray that like manna from heaven, the notes just fall into your laps and, uh, and then we'll, we'll continue. So God, thank you for your grace to us. Uh, thank you for who you are. Thank you for loving us. I pray, Lord, as we, uh, as we just uh, talk about a lot of, uh, difficult things, Lord, that uh, it wouldn't be controversy for controversy's sake. We wouldn't just get excited about what's controversial, but instead uh, we would be, get excited about uh, obeying you. Uh, Lord, the church is called to, uh, to make disciples of all nations. I pray that we would indeed do that. And teaching all nations to obey everything that Christ has commanded. And so that's what we're trying to do this morning. And I pray that we would indeed uh, submit to your authority, Lord, that we would obey and uh, Lord, that you would help us because we need your grace. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so let's get started quickly with just a quick definition, a quick understanding of immigration. What exactly are we talking about when we talk about immigration? And that is the act or the process. I, put, I should have put this on your notes, but a lot of you still don't have the notes, so it doesn't even matter. Is the act or the process of traveling to a country for the purpose of long-term or permanent settlement or residence. It's the process of traveling from one country to another in order to settle there permanently. Okay? That is what immigration is. And so it's not just someone moving from one place to the other. You know, if I move from that side of the room to the other side of the room, I'm not immigrating. Or if I go to the grocery store, are any of you still going to the grocery store, like actually walking through the aisles like peasants? You can get like curbside pickup now. You don't have to get out of your car. It's amazing. But that's not immigration. You know, immigration is where you're leaving your home country, your country of origin, or leaving a certain country that you've been a citizen or been a part of, and you're joining a new country and you're residing there somewhat permanently. 
And in this, immigration, something we don't really understand or we don't really think about is that immigration is an exchange. It's a social exchange and it's an agreement between two parties. And those parties are a, or a, an immigrant, an individual, and a nation, a government, all right? So, so we're not involved in the immigration agreement as citizens of the nation. It's actually just an agreement between an individual who's wanting to immigrate to the country and the government. That's where the agreement exists. And it's an exchange of resources. And so what the immigrant will do is lay down certain rights, certain uh, resources, may even have to pay some money for applications, have to foot the bill, have to get over here and sort of lay down some of his rights for the sake of or for the opportunity to be a part of a country. And that country is going to bring in this uh, individual and they're going to give that individual certain civil opportunities. And so a great example is this, this uh, individual is going to come into the United States and they are agreeing to work, to make money, to consume products in the marketplace, uh, and then pay taxes. That's their part of the deal, their part of the, the bargain. And then the United States or whatever government is offering to offer them protection from foreign invaders. They're offering uh, easy access to a, a great economic system and a labor market, healthcare opportunities. And so it's a social exchange where each party is actually giving up a little bit of what it'd rather just like to keep to itself for the sake of a, a better deal for everyone. Okay? And so... I just say that to help us see that immigration always costs something. Immigration costs everybody. It's, it's something that costs something. That's how it works. So whether you're reading immigration in the Bible or you're reading about immigration in today's politics in the U.S., there's no such thing as an exchangeless immigration process. There's always a bill that has to be paid, and that's how immigration has always worked. Okay? So just, that's just going to lay our, our foundation so we could talk about immigration. Now, I want to talk about how a government, this is sort of really what we're going to focus on today. I want to talk about how a government ought to, uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for? Handle immigration. And I think that this is strange whenever you get online, especially on Twitter, and you start seeing how Christians will answer this question. It becomes very, very quickly you'll recognize that they're not being informed by the Bible, or at least seems that way, because the things that they'll, they'll mention, the, the suggestions they'll offer are not necessarily drawn from the Bible. And there was a really interesting study that Lifeway, who's like the Baptist, I don't even know what you call it, the Baptist magazine publisher, I almost called it the Baptist Watchtower, like Jehovah's Witnesses. And so, I shouldn't say that, but kind of, okay? So Lifeway did this, they did this uh, publication or this study where they asked everybody, what is most informing your opinions on immigration? And 12% of, of participants said the Bible. And it was almost 40% said media, friends, immigrants I've interacted with. And so obviously the result of that is going to be pretty unclear biblical perspective of what a government's job is, how a government should best handle the immigration situation, okay? So that's what I want to talk about today. That's why we're talking about it. So let's start. What is the most loving way for the government to handle immigration? Number one, should protect the welfare of its citizens, Okay. I'm starting with this point because it's one of the most important components of the entire immigration debate. 
And like most important components in any political conversation, it's the very thing that everyone skips over and so we can't actually have a real conversation. Okay, this is a very foundational, important point to this conversation. So let me ask this question. What is the government's number one primary job? What is the government's primary job, numero uno? If they had a job description, like you may have at your job, under responsibilities, the very first thing listed, what would the government's job be? Oh, wow, we had a couple of them. That's, yeah, that's great. Basically, it's to protect the welfare of its citizens. And so we're going to talk in a second about how protecting the border is a component of that and how exercising justice is a component of that, protecting the welfare of its citizens. And how you answer this question, it typically actually, it determines how, where you're going to fall in the immigration debate. How you answer this question, how you understand what the government's number, number one job is, well, typically uh, you'll kind of just follow that line into a certain side of this debate. So some will say the government's primary job is to make the world a better place, okay? To use our wealth as a nation to bless other nations. That sounds great, very Abrahamic. And so those with that view will reject any kind of uh, immigration policy that might keep some people out or an immigration policy that uh, says, you know, America first or anything like that. They'll, they'll see that as uh, selfish and as nationalistic when a government's prioritizing its own citizens over the desires of other nations. And so they'll disagree uh, with, I think, I think is the biblical argument, uh, which is that the government's number one job is to protect the welfare of its citizens first and foremost. The government's number one priority is the good of those within its borders. And so it's better for the U.S. to prioritize what is best for the citizen of the United States over what might be best for citizens of other nations. Now let's talk about where we get that. That sounds kind of, but, but let's just be patient. Romans 13, 1 through 5. It's very important for understanding the role of the government. It says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you'll receive his approval. For he is God's servant. Here's what government's purpose is. He's God's servant for your good as a citizen. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword. That means capital punishment. That's a reference there to capital punishment. Be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of of conscience. And so Paul makes a very clear claim, a clear claim. He makes a clear claim in the statement, which is that God has instituted government over you ultimately for your good. That's the purpose of government. God has established governments for the purpose of protecting you from wrongdoers, as he says, criminals, and to protect you yourself from becoming a criminal, right? recognizing that man is sinful, that you want to go down 121 going 140 miles per hour, but you're dumb and you're not a good driver. And so protecting you from doing things that would end up harming yourself and leading to the, the decrease in the general welfare of the community of this nation. And so all these things are, are done in order to protect and safeguard your good. So one really 
uh, one real example of this is that you pay taxes, right? And that pays for a police force who then punishes you and everyone around you for any wrongdoing. And decreasing wrongdoing is how the government protects that number one priority, which is you, its citizens. So that's the means by which it achieves its end by protecting the welfare of its citizens. That's the implication here in Romans 13. And I, I left a quote here by a guy named James R. Edwards Jr. He's a, he's a Presbyterian pastor and also just a, a great thinker when it comes to immigration. He says, in other words, looking at Romans 13, civil government has been delegated authority to use force because government fulfills the role of protector of a specific body politic, which is just a smart person way of saying some people and the members of that political society. The reason the sword of justice has been delegated to earthly governments is for protection of a defined set of people who live under a government's jurisdiction. It is not power for power's sake, but power to protect and defend a state's own people and resources. Earthly rulers, whoa, that was crazy. Are we good? Oh man, check, we still good? Wow. I must have said something wrong. Okay. Earthly rulers are to guard their own citizens against evil in the world and in the hearts of men. Okay. So to answer the question, what is the most loving way for the government to handle immigration? It's to function as it was meant to function by protecting the welfare of its citizens. But what about the welfare of the people that are trying to come into the country? What about the welfare of the people who long to be citizens in the U.S.? Doesn't their welfare matter as well? It's a great question. I'm glad you asked that. Here's what you have to realize. First, in the eyes of the government, their welfare does not matter enough to compromise the welfare of its own citizen, to forsake the job that it has been given by God to do, protect its own citizens. And if a government is quick to compromise its citizens' welfare, then it's actually failing to do what governments are created to do. That's bad. And also we want to recognize that often the reason people are leaving their nations and wanting to move to the United States is because the government of their home country did not do a good job protecting the welfare of its citizens, crippling the economy, leading to an increase in crime or violence. So if a government doesn't first establish its priority, then adding individuals to a list of citizens whose good and welfare is already neglected is incredibly unloving. Only after a nation prioritizes the good of its own citizens can it begin to consider how to lovingly accept new members into the protection of its borders. Okay, now speaking of borders, (laughs) this next point really follows the first. The most loving way for the government to handle immigration is to protect and enforce the border. Here's what I mean by that, okay? Before you start saying the wall, you know, just calm down. The degree to which a government protects its border illustrates the degree to which it's committed to protecting the welfare of its citizens. Okay, you see how those kind of go hand in hand? Therefore, a nation ought to protect its border and certainly not apologize for doing so, right? National borders or boundaries are just this natural consequence of the call given to governments to protect their citizens. So governments need to know who they're accountable for who they're supposed to be protecting and who they're not supposed to be protecting, who's outside their sovereignty. So this is where the idea of jurisdiction comes in. The extent of a government's rule is determined by the extent of its 
border. Otherwise, how do you know which nation is responsible for protecting which citizens? Let's say, uh, you know, if a foreign invader wants to blow up your house, how do you figure out who it is that's going to provide you with protection? Who's going to help you? Who's going to defend you, protect the welfare of your citizenry? You'll say, well, I'm in the United States, so of course they will. Well, great. How do you know you're in the United States? How do you know you're not outside of the United States? That's what a border is. It's a nation saying, we exist to protect the welfare of everyone who lives within this area and only that which will contribute to the good of these people in this area can actually come in. So really, our first and second points go hand in hand, like love and marriage. You can't have one without the... Beautiful. And just like how we saw that governments are established by God, so are the boundaries of their rule. Check out Acts 17, 26 through 27. And he, being God, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, the borders of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. So this says that God has for all of time, says that explicitly, determined the extent of the rule of nations, both chronologically and geographically. He's determined the lifespan of the United States. He knows the day that the United States is going to be kaput. It's going to have this Rome fall. He knows exactly when that's going to happen, if it is going to happen. And he's sovereign over our dwelling place. He's sovereign over our border in the year 2020, this amazing year that it's been. So God has determined the boundaries of the nations. And so to say that borders are somehow inherently evil, like I've seen several Christians say in recent days, is inaccurate at best, but unbiblical at worst. They're not, they're not evil. God so supports the establishment and enforcement of borders that the Old Testament is full of commands against ignoring national border lines. Explicit condemnations not to ignore boundary lines between nations. Or even worse, those who would move a boundary line in order to give themselves an advantage or to make life better for themselves at the cost of their neighbor. So Hosea 5.10, condemning the princes of Judah says, the princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark, which is a, a boundary line, a line that marks two different areas from one another. Upon them, I will pour out my wrath like water. In Deuteronomy 19.14 says, you shall not move your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set in the inheritance that you will hold in the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. So that's evil, that's wicked, that's unrighteous. Notice that these texts are extremely relevant to the topic of illegal immigration. To enter a country illegally is essentially to move the boundary line of your inheritance. Remember, that was determined by God. He allotted those boundary lines, as we saw in Acts 17. It's to cheat your way into inheriting what has not been given to you, and the scriptures would call that wicked and unrighteous. And so in, in protecting the boundaries determined by God, governments have the right. And as we read in Romans 13, the divine call to punish the wrongdoer and those who would reject the authority of the state by residing illegally. So what's the most loving way for a government to handle immigration? Well, to protect its border and not feel bad about punishing those who would enter illegally. 
Not feel bad about deporting those who choose to enter or stay illegally. So I do want to talk about real quickly this immigration controversy of 2018. If you can even remember that far. Can you remember 2018 BC before coronavirus? Specifically, I want to talk about the family separation policy, as it was called, at the U.S.-Mexico border, okay? So if you don't remember, the U.S. got a lot of criticism worldwide over this certain policy which required that if any individuals were caught trying to cross the border illegally, especially those with alleged family members, family members who were children, then these children would be taken into custody, the custody of the United States, while their parents or their parent was charged with a crime and went to court, okay? As their court case was carried out, the children and the parents were separated. And obviously, this policy went poorly for the United States, at least from a PR angle, because these children had to be placed in these detention centers with their parents awaiting trial. And so I do want to just say one thing. This is just a fun fact. I've heard a lot of Christians, uh, a lot of more conservative Christians talk about how this was a policy that was just carried over from the previous administration, which I just want to help us understand this. That's a half truth. Yes, it was. Uh, Part of it is that from the previous administration, anyone who entered the country illegally and was charged with the crime would be separated from their children because that's how it works in the United States. If you commit a crime, you lose access to or you lose certain freedoms, including the freedom to live with your children, right? Anyone who commits a crime, they get put in jail, and by default, that means your children are separated from you, including if the mom and the dad commit a crime together, they'll be separated from their children, and the children will be put into the care of a family member or the state if there's no family member to do so. In the previous administration, anyone charged with a crime, yes, that's exactly what happened. The children were taken from the parents. However... Not often were people charged with a crime. They were simply turned, said, go back. If someone tried to enter the border illegally, they were simply turned around and said, go home, go away from here. We're not charging you with a crime. Please leave. And so there were not a lot of children being separated from their parents. The current administration kind of instituted this zero tolerance policy, which means if you cross illegally, guess what? You've committed a crime, which is absolutely true. You cross the border illegally, you've already committed a crime, and therefore you would be charged with a crime, and therefore your children would be separated from you. Now, I do think that the U.S. deserves a lot of criticism for the poor handling of the separation of these uh, children from their parents, right? And so if you're, if you're going to charge somebody with a crime and you're going to separate their children from them, uh, I think you ought to do it well, right? But at the same time, it is, it is true that if you commit a crime, you, you do not get to retain the rights of uh, having your children stay with you, especially when you're doing so in a country that is not your own, especially when you're doing so in a country where you may, it's just not a, it's not a, good, it's not a good game. I, my, uh, I used to have an uncle who would say, it's like high five and a hornet, which means that, that sounds like a good idea. It sounds kind of cool. It sounds like a great, a great choice. It sounds like there might be some cool benefits. However, the risks way, way outweigh the benefits. So, does the government have a right to prosecute wrongdoers? Absolutely. Were those crossing the border wrongdoers? Absolutely. When the state with 
any other crime and you're put in jail, you're charged with a crime and you're awaiting your court case, do they separate your uh, children from you? Absolutely. And so why would it be any different in this context? But I would also say, if you're going to enforce that policy, you better do a good job taking care of the kids. Uh, A fun update, uh, now they will detain you with your family uh, if the only crime charged against you is illegal border crossing. Uh, And so they'll do that while you await your your, uh, charges, while you await your court case, and before they uh, deport you and send you back where you came from. Okay, (laughs) so we we talk a lot of stuff there. But just the, the note, don't try to illegally enter a foreign nation. Please, don't do that because it's not worth it. Um, Number three, the most loving way for the government to handle immigration is to accept an appropriate number of appropriate applicants. Okay, a lot of appropriateness. We gotta spend a little time here. Is it wrong for a government to tell some people, we don't want you here, and other people, yes, you're welcome here, based on certain qualifications? Is that necessarily wrong? No, it is not wrong. Because remember that immigration is an exchange of resources. The immigrant brings certain resources, his labor, his submission to the law of the land, ability to pay taxes. And the government offers in exchange for those resources the benefit of police force, national defense, access to a good economy with opportunities to work and even advance for some upward mobility in your employment, etc. And remember also that the government's priority is the welfare of its citizens. And so... A government ought to prioritize the acceptance of individuals that will actually be able to hold up their end of the bargain and have no effect, or even better, a positive effect on the general welfare of the citizens of that nation. And furthermore, it's not wrong for the government to limit the number of applicants it accepts in order to prevent a depletion of economic resources, overwhelming particular markets, overwhelming particular labor forces, which would indeed harm the general welfare of its citizens. And so that's a lot of jargon, but let me illustrate it this way. Again, remember, pretend you have a home uh, that's for rent, okay? Pretend you have a house that's for rent and you're wanting someone to come live there, all right? And you make this agreement. You pay me X amount of dollars for rent and I will let you stay in the house. That sounds great. But if the individual has doesn't have a job with which to pay you that rent, then you probably shouldn't rent to that individual. Or if that individual has a history, they have a criminal record of burning down houses that they used to live in, <laughs> you probably would want to restrict anyone with that sort of criminal record from renting at your place, having your access to your home, especially not store any gas cans around the house. So we have to ask a couple of questions in order to determine who will, for example, have a good chance of, you know, finding a good job in our country, or who's going to require less government assistance, or it's good to ask, you know, does this applicant speak English? Because if they do, that will give them a huge advantage in finding a job, keeping a job long term. On the negative side, you have to ask, does this applicant, if someone's trying to come into the country and apply for, to immigrate, do they have a criminal record? That's a great question to ask. Do either the, does this applicant have a history of unemployment in their home country? Does this applicant maybe have significant health issues? 
And that would require them to, they would be unable to work and that would require them to get on some sort of uh, government assistance, some sort of like Medicaid, get on some sort of government funded uh, insurance. And so these are the sort of things that we're talking about when I use the word appropriate applicant, okay? And just as a random side note, you have to notice here, please do, immigration has nothing to do with race, Immigration is not a race issue. You know, if you're teaching a class on race, immigration should not be a subpoint at all. Because immigration has nothing to do with race. You notice this. It has nothing to do with race. When you choose to accept an individual and reject another individual, in the United States at least, that is never a question of race. It is purely a question of this social agreement, this economic exchange. Will this person be a positive, especially regarding economic resources, will they be a positive addition that affects the general welfare of the citizens of this nation for the good of the people of this nation? Immigration is absolutely beneficial to a nation. Absolutely, you gotta hear me say that. Immigration is incredibly beneficial to a nation. But only as long as the individuals that you're welcoming will have that positive effect, okay? Only if you, you, you bring in and you invite individuals who will actually give to the positive good of a nation rather than take away. One other qualifi- qualification that I think might ought to be considered is this. Will these individuals be able to properly assimilate, okay? That word, assimilate, in sociological circles is very offensive, okay? We're afraid of requiring individuals to learn the language, celebrate national holidays, because that's seen as some sort of cultural oppression, okay? But you have to recognize that that is exactly the commands that God gives to foreigners, immigrants in the Old Testament, those who are joining the nation of Israel, for example, Exodus 12, 19, talking about the Passover feast. For seven days, no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he's a sojourner, meaning an immigrant, or a native of that land. Doesn't matter, native or sojourner, okay? And immigrants are also expected to keep like dietary and holiness laws. Leviticus 17, 12, therefore I've said to the people of Israel, no person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Leviticus 17, 15, every person who eats what dies of itself or what is torn by beasts, whether he's a native or a sojourner, doesn't matter, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening, then he shall be clean. And then Leviticus 18, 26, but you shall keep my statutes and my rules and do none of these abominations. He's just talked about a bunch and he's just summarizing that. Do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger, the foreigner who sojourns among you. So it seems at the very least, it's not evil for a government to encourage or mandate assimilation. Okay, it actually helps to unify the immigrant with the citizens, And so individuals who are maybe more interested in this sort of assimilation would probably be a better fit for immigration and entry into the country than somebody who explicitly opposed this idea of cultural assimilation. So, additionally, one more thing. The government has the right to limit the number of immigrants accepted every year. 
really as a means of ensuring there are not too many individuals taking from the same pool of resources. And so this is what I mean when I say we should accept an appropriate number of applicants. Not just the appropriate applicants, but an appropriate number of these applicants. We don't need to spend too much time on this because this is a very simple calculation. If you invite too many people to your birthday party, then you're going to run out of food. There won't be enough food for everyone. And if a government allows more individuals to immigrate than it has resources, and the quality of those, immigra- of those uh, individuals who are immigrating is they're unable to actually put forth any sort of economic resources they're only going to take, well, then it really goes badly for everyone. Because accepting too many, the, the economy or certain jobs are overwhelmed. There's this undersupply of money to pay people, but an oversupply of workers, it goes badly. So the most loving way for a government to handle immigration is to limit how many immigrants are allowed in and ensure that there are enough resources to go around so that the welfare of those living within the nation's borders remains protected. So, for example, the U.S., we have about 47 million immigrants, which is pretty cool. We have 47 million immigrants living in the U.S., and according to the National Academy of Sciences, on average, each immigrant costs his or her state and local governments $1,600 more a year in expenditures than he or she contributes in revenues, which, by the way, is a total of $75.2 billion per year lost from our budget. Okay, that's $1 trillion every 13 years. Okay, that's three Jeff Bezoses. Okay, that's all, that is a lot of resources. And so maybe this sounds too mathematical, but, but once again, if you have this rent house and rent is, you know, $1,000, but every single month, the individual who's living in your rent house costs you $1,600, actually it would be $2,600 because they're not paying their rent and you're actually having to pay $1,600 a month just to repair everything in your house, that is not a great individual to have in your rent house. That's not going to work out for you long term. You're eventually going to have to sell the house. It's going to be in worse condition, especially if you think of it from the lens of, let's imagine the United States is a parent. And you can adopt as many children, and you ought to adopt as many children as you are able to adopt. However, once you begin ending every single month with a $1,600 deficit, with no way of of getting that, (laughs) that money back, you have to recognize humbly that you do not have the resources in order to keep adopting children. And you're actually going, it's gonna lead to you caring very poorly for the individuals you're adopting, caring very poorly about your, your current children rather than the ones that you're adding to your household. And eventually you yourself are going to run out of resources. You'll lose your house, you'll not be able to put food on the table, and you will be neglecting the very thing that God has put you over to protect your family. And so you have to humbly be able to recognize, I cannot afford this. I cannot afford to adopt another child because all of them would suffer if I continued to have such a deficit. And so what I'm saying is when the government exists to protect the welfare of its citizens, which includes its economy, it's important to prioritize an acceptance of immigrants that will benefit the nation rather than exhaust its resources. And so the most loving way for the government to treat immigrants would be to ensure those individuals will actually be able to succeed long-term in the U.S. 
rather than have to, for example, for so many, depend on Medicaid, which is not great health care, and maybe even depend on a $400 a month social uh, security or supplemental security income check. I worked for a Medicaid-funded mental health facility uh, when Kelsey and I were living in Corpus Christi. And I worked with individuals receiving care for major depressive disorder, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, addiction to every kind of substance you can imagine. It was a real fun place. About half of my clients down in Corpus Christi were immigrants. And guess what? They were coming to our facility because they were on Medicaid and they were getting a government stipend, a monthly income check of $400 a month. And most of my individuals were afraid to get a job because they would then be disqualified from receiving their guaranteed $400 a month. And just note, they saw me and a doctor, a guy with an MD, once a week at least. All services, my paycheck, our building, all 100 other employees that worked at this facility were all paid for by Medicaid. And that was something that half of my clients had no ability to begin to pay back. It was purely deficit. Now, obviously, those are extreme situations, but it illustrates this need for limitations based on the quality of the applicant for the sake of the economic welfare of U.S. citizens, as well as the long-term welfare of the individuals who are immigrating. Let me say just some scriptural support that I'll give here, uh, that it's helpful to not support an individual who's unwilling to support 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 through 12. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you've received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. Paul's saying, we have the right to get bread from you because we were working for you. Back in, the, in these ancient days, people didn't get paid with like money, with currency. You got paid with goods. You know, John Calvin's salary, uh, when he's in the, it, <laughs> John Calvin's salary during the Reformation was mostly composed of uh, lodging and wine, okay? You would, you would be paid in these goods. And Paul's saying, we deserve to get some bread from you. Okay, And we didn't even ask you to give us that. We actually bought our own bread. We actually exchanged pounds of salt for our own bread. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. We hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and earn their own living. Now, Paul is not saying that we should not care for the individual who is unable to provide for themselves. But what we can imply from this text, especially as those who are part of a nation, as Christians are part of a nation, is that if we shouldn't even support the brother among us in the church who is unwilling to work and just wants to eat, unwilling to put economic resources into the economy but only wants to take, how much less should a government support such an individual, okay? Should we care for those who are unable? Yes, we as Christians, we're gonna talk about whether the government should care for those individuals in just a second. So, if not even Christians should support one of our own brothers who acts that way, much less 
our nation's government at the citizen's expense. Number four, the government ought to protect the welfare of immigrants. Ought to protect the welfare of immigrants. Finally, the most loving way for a government to handle immigration is to ensure that the welfare of immigrants is protected as well as that of the citizens. Just as well as that of the citizens. This is what sets the immigrant apart from the people who live back in his country of origin. They may come visit him in his new home, but he has certain privileges that they do not possess. He now has the same protections that are extended to the citizens of his new home. And the Old Testament is full of commands to treat the immigrant this way. The Old Testament has all these passages about the sojourner being treated with justice. It condemns trying to steal from the sojourner or treat the sojourner unjustly in court. Let me just talk real quick about this word sojourner. Sojourner, it's a hard word. When you read that word in your Bible, don't think illegal immigration because that is not what that word is referring to. It never means that. The ancient civilizations don't really have a classification for illegal immigrant because if you entered somebody's land without telling anybody and they just saw some random guy pop out, say, hey, I'm here and I'm living here, they're probably gonna kill you, okay? There's no such thing as illegal immigration in the ancient world and if there is, it doesn't last very long, okay? So don't do what Russell Moore a prominent uh, leader in the SBC a few years ago did when he said that Jesus was actually an undocumented uh, immigrant when he went to Egypt uh, with his parents, even though Egypt was a part of the Roman Empire. So that whole argument was weird to begin with. But Jesus was somehow an undocumented immigrant and therefore the church should care for undocumented immigrants. That was Russell Moore's argument. And we don't make that argument based on these sojourner texts. So we'll talk about more of that in a, in a second. But when you read the word sojourner in your Bible, you should read it as authorized alien or an authorized immigrant. Basically someone who's filled out some sort of paperwork, made some sort of social agreement, not some random undocumented person. Leviticus 19.34 says, you shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God, which is God's way of saying, you better do this. Listen, I am God, do what I say. Deuteronomy 29, 19. Cursed be anyone who perverts the justice due to the sojourner, the fatherless and the widow, and all the people shall say, amen, which is all the people saying, we'll totally do that. We won't disobey, we promise. And finally, Exodus twenty-two twenty-nine. The people of the land have practiced extortion and committed robbery. They have oppressed the poor and needy and have extorted from the sojourner without justice is how God is condemning his people for not treating the sojourner fair, fairly. So once the government adopts an individual into its borders, that individual should be protected as if they are a citizen. That's the implication of these texts. If some foreign nation invades, but only attacks like the immigrants' homes, the nation go, doesn't go like, oh, phew, it's just immigrants. We don't have to do anything. No retaliation necessary. No, that would be evil. That would be wicked. They should receive the same exact protections, and the U.S. ought to respond as if its own citizens were attacked. And again, that's the government's promise in this social exchange that is immigration. The individual gives certain resources, and the government ought to then protect the welfare of that immigrant in the same way that its whole job is to protect the welfare of its citizens. Now, how should Christians, how should we as Christians, what is the most loving way for Christians to treat the immigrants? And this section will just be a little bit faster because you mostly agree with these things already. You may not agree with the things I've already said, but now you'll probably agree with what I'm about to say. So I don't have to spend as much time on it. Uh, Number one, 
Christians should welcome all nations. Christians should give to those in need among us and we should submit to the governing authorities. So here's one thing you need to know before we go any further. Notice that all we've talked about so far, all we've talked about so far, you're probably sick of me saying it, is how the government's job is to protect the welfare of its citizens, right? You've heard me say that like a hundred times, which involves punishing the wrongdoer, making the economy, making sure the economy is in a good place, all these things. These are all acts typically categorized as justice. The government does justice, maintaining a just society. And these are the things usually done best by the government. Where the government is limited is in doing acts of mercy. The government's great at justice, not so great at mercy. And so the work of mercy is primarily something to be carried out by individuals. Mercy is something given to individuals to carry out rather than the government because it's not just, it's just not the, the government's role, okay? For example, imagine somebody burns your house down. You as an individual have an opportunity to show mercy and forgive that person completely for burning down your house. And that would be an act of mercy. Now imagine somebody burns down your house and the government forces you to forgive that person. That's not very merciful anymore, is it? That's coercive. That's evil. That's wicked. That's not justice. And so justice is something reserved for the government often and mercy is something given to the individuals. So with that being said, we need to say, when we say things like we ought to be loving the immigrant and we should be giving food to immigrants because of what Leviticus 19 says, or we should give money to immigrants, we need to be clear that we are not talking about the United States government. That's not the we in that sentence. We should be loving the immigrant. Well, yes, but in a, in a way that only individuals can. But the United States should not be compelling individuals to love immigrants in a certain way. The United States should not be compelling the uh, United States citizens to love immigrants by paying for their abortions. You see how that act of mercy doesn't really line up with our definition of mercy? So it's very bad when the government does the mercy. It's better for the individuals to do the mercy. And so all of the immigration quotes from the Old Testament that people tend to reference when talking about the immigration debate, like how we should leave extras from our harvest and the, and the vine press for the immigrant, these texts are all commands that are actually given to individual believers rather than some sort of tax or some sort of public policy. So it's important to recognize that the work for caring for the poor and the widowed and the orphan or the immigrant is distinctly the work of individuals and not something meant to be driven by our government. In other words, the proper application of these texts is to be carried out by the church rather than the United States government, okay? So with that in mind, what is the most loving way for Christians to treat immigrants? First, welcome all nations. And I said, duh, like that shouldn't be news, okay? I shouldn't have to tell you to welcome all people. Israel is told in Leviticus 19 to treat the sojourner among them as a native and likewise the church doesn't discriminate based on nationality or country of origin, Galatians 3, 28 through 29 says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you're, you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Which means the inheritance of our land that we hold most importantly is the inheritance of Abraham, an eternal kingdom, right? 
And the church only categorizes people in two categories, those of the kingdom and those who are not, those who are outside of the kingdom. And so Christians ought to welcome the believer, anyone who's of the kingdom, regardless of what nation they come from. That doesn't matter. Just as long as they're a part of this family of Christ, we ought to welcome them. But Christians should also welcome the unbelieving immigrant as well. We should, as individual Christians, minister to the immigrants around us. So I'm not saying you... You have to be ministering to immigrants to be faithful. I'm not, certainly, I'm not saying that, that you have to go find some immigrants to be ministering to. But as you work with immigrants day in and day out, or you have someone you, you work with in your office, you live next door to an immigrant, there should be no reason that you treat that individual or family any differently than you would treat any other neighbor that you're ministering to. Number two, we have to give to those in need among you. This is the actual application of Leviticus 19 or texts like Matthew 25 talking about the least of these. This is the actual application. The texts that people reference in support of having open border policies, this is how you actually apply those texts, by giving to those in need among you. So let's just look at one of the most popular texts real quick, cited to support letting illegal immigrants remain in the country without any consequences. And that is Matthew 25, 31 through 46, which says, when the son of man comes in his glory and all the, all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations. He will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on the left. Notice as he tells the story, it's, you can see these categories developing and it's like he's pointing. He says, they're going to go over here to the right and they're going to go here to the left. I, I picture Jesus talking with his hands, Okay. And the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, a foreigner, and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous, meaning believers, the church, that's who he's talking to, the righteous. They'll ask They'll answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them. This is very important. He'll say, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, who is he pointing to when he says the least of these, my brothers, he's been pointing to the right and to the left. And now he calls out a specific group. He says, you've done the least, the least of these. And he points to somebody. Who's he, who's he pointing to? He's pointing to those on his right. And the least of these from among them. That's who he's pointing to. The least of these, and he, he makes that explicit, my brothers. The least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. You'll notice something absent when he talks to the cursed. Then he'll say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. What a happy text. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was strong, I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. I love how I'm pointing at Zach as I say this. <laughs> Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, you did not visit me. Then they will also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he'll answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these. He's no longer talking to his brothers. He points back, you didn't do it to the least of these over here on my right. You did not do it to me. 
And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So Jesus is specifically commanding believers to care for the immigrant, the poor, the thirsty, but saying first and foremost to care for the least of these within the church. That's what Jesus is saying. This is a whole other topic. We can do a whole theological equipping class on this. But here's my point. You are obligated to care for the immigrant among you. You're not obligated to buy lunch for any immigrant. No, I don't think that's true, but you're obligated to support the immigrant in need that is a part of your church family here at Parkway. Absolutely. Because immigration can be hard. It can be extremely expensive. It can be extremely difficult to find a job. It can be extremely difficult to learn a new language that you have no interaction with prior to moving here. And so... I think Jesus is referring to this church when he says that we ought to care for the least of these. And he's referring to those among us here in our church who are immigrants, that we should care for those individuals first. And once we've cared for those individuals, then we can go care for the unbeliever uh, immigrant who lives next door to us, who's in our office place, wherever that may be. Number three, submit to the governing authorities. Okay, right back where we started. Romans 13, one through five. The job of the government is to protect our good, but notice also in Romans 13 that it is the job of the Christian and any citizen to submit to the government insofar as we're not asked to sin. So the most unloving thing you could ever do is to encourage someone to disobey God. That is the most unloving thing you can ever do, encouraging someone to disobey God. And notice that what a lot of Christians will say in regard to illegal immigration, for example, sounds a lot like what the serpent said to Eve in the garden. Did God really say, submit to the governing authorities? You don't don't have to do that. It's fine. Look at the cost. If you you don't submit to the governing authorities, you're a legal immigrant, you might get deported. You might get put in jail and then deported. It might go really badly for your family. It might not be a good thing for you. And so the good thing is to to disobey God's word. Make your own way. Choose your own law. Make your own rules. And submit to those rather than the governing authority of the land and therefore the sovereignty and authority of God who has commanded that you submit to the governing authorities over you. That's the most unloving thing you could do. Which means, what, what if I learned that somebody, what if we learned here that somebody came to Parkway joined our membership, and they were actually an illegal immigrant, undocumented immigrant? What, or what if we learned that someone here is overstaying their visa? I believe that we ought to have a conversation with them. We would, we would have a good conversation with them about how to make sure they recognize that this is actually sin. They're living in unrepentant sin. And then we would connect them to good legal resources. We would try to connect them to a, a good lawyer and recognize that ultimately we're going to have to face the consequences of our actions. If we've entered the country illegally, we have to submit to the governing authorities. Even us, as we're wrongdoers. And we wouldn't encourage anybody in any other crime if I go out and I punch a guy in the face for no apparent reason. The church ought to encourage me to turn myself in. There's like a manhunt for the weird McKinney face puncher. Y'all are going to encourage me, as you ought to, to get some good legal defense and for whatever that's worth and turn myself in. 
If someone was doing any, committing any other sort of crime, someone was you know, not paying their taxes, we would encourage them. We'd say, hey, that's sin. You ought to submit to the governing authorities over you. You ought to pay your taxes. But for some strange reason, when it comes to illegal immigration, we're afraid to say that. We have to be consistent in our application of the commands of Scripture. And so that's, that's what we ought to do. You don't just, we don't just call ICE and say, hey, we got an illegal that tried to join our membership here at Parkway. No, absolutely not. They would be a brother among us. They would be a member of our church. And we would help them to submit to God, to obey what Christ has commanded, because that's our goal. We have to make disciples, teaching all nations to obey all that Christ has commanded. And so that's exactly what we would do. Hebrews 12 is really helpful text in this regard because when we do wrong and we make a mistake, we're sinners, we know that we will, we're gonna have to face earthly consequences. But our hope isn't ultimately in residing in the nation of the United States. Rather, our hope is in a greater kingdom. Our hope is in a, is a kingdom that is yet to come, yet is now. And so as citizens of that kingdom, we, we await the day of the consummation of that kingdom. Until then, recognize that we will have to suffer. And it is, it is suffering self-inflicted to submit yourselves to the kingdom of God rather than shirking the responsibility to respect and submit to the governing authority over you. That's a hard decision. Hebrews 12, verse 11 says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And that's ultimately our goal. The peaceful fruit of righteousness that God would train us. Discipline's hard. It's hard to go through uh, you know, immigration court, obviously. That's why I want to get you a good lawyer. But ultimately recognize that our submission to God is most important and that we face any consequences, we face any discipline, no matter how painful it seems, for this peaceful fruit of righteousness and this eternal kingdom, this land that we seek that is far greater than the land in which we currently dwell. So Zach, why don't you come up, answer some questions with like the half second of time that we have left.